Bert Shavitz, a former photojournalist in New York, had turned his back on the hustle and bustle of city life. He opted for a simpler, more tranquil existence in the backwoods of Maine, the easternmost state of the New England region of America. Bert took up beekeeping. It was a humble yet solitary life, far removed from the chaos of the urban grind. Then one day, Roxanne Quimby was hitchhiking back from work when Bert happened to drive by. In a decision that would alter the course of the rest of their lives, Bert decided to offer Roxanne a ride. A connection sparked between the reclusive beekeeper and the aspiring artist. Roxanne was captivated by Bert's simple way of life and his beekeeping endeavours. They decided to start a business together and sell honey, but it was their leftover beeswax that sparked the idea for a new type of lip balm. The product was a hit at local craft fairs, not just for its quality, but for the story it carried, a natural, pure product born from nature and human creativity. I am of course sharing the story of Burt's Bees, a company that's valued at over $1 billion. Would this brand have been as successful without the story behind it? We can only speculate, but it certainly helps us to connect with their products beyond a simple logo. On today's episode, we are exploring the superpower of storytelling in marketing and how you can apply these practical techniques for yourself to be more influential at work. I'm joined by Chirag Nijer, who is a Platinum Customer Success Lead at Google. He works with some of the biggest brands on the planet. He is a public speaker who shares real-world storytelling insights to help entrepreneurs navigate towards setting clear objectives and following research-backed methods. Chirag is a TikTok sensation and has an online audience of over 60,000 followers contributing to over 6.1 million views. From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. So, Gerard, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about stories behind the story. I'd love to know your story and how you got to do the things that you do. I think the the part I always come back to for everyone, I grew up in a small business family and that's a very big part of my identity. Literally, we had cribs at the store where I grew up. And I always tell people, they think I'm joking, but one of the first toys I ever played with was a credit card machine. I could swipe your credit card before I knew my ABCs kind of thing. But in that setting was amazing because I got to learn a ton of public speaking skills, a bunch of interacting with people, obviously a lot of sales, marketing and all that. But at the same time, it was, it was also stressful. Like you, you learn the value and how hard it is to make a dollar, or I guess in your case, a pound. But one of the, the harder things to learn was that when things got tough, we didn't have an MBA. 
No, we didn't have consultants. We didn't have the resources to go hire someone out. My parents were Indian immigrants. So my dad's sort of manifesto of marketing was like, oh, don't say it's $90, say it's $89.99, which later on in my studies, it turns out is a psychological thing that works. But I was always fascinated with this idea of like branding and marketing. What makes this big difference? So uh, growing up here in New York City, during when I was in high school, all the cool kids had the North Face backpack for some reason. I mean, kids don't, and it was like, it wasn't even normal North Face, but it was like the tactical, like hiking gear, like backpack. And if you had one, you were, you were a cool kid. And for the longest time, I begged my parents, like, hey, can I get a North Face backpack? Now for my parents, they're like, well, we understand, like, if you were to ask like a brand, like, I don't know, Michael Kors or something, but you're asking us for a tactical backpack to go to school. And these are like $130 or something. They're like, we can't justify that. Until one day my mom comes home and she's super excited. She has a gift for me. She pulls out a bag and she goes, Trug, the 99 cent store that just opened up next door was selling these bags and they were on sale for like $30 or something. If you looked at the bag on it in the logo, it said instead of North Face, it said the Nerth Face. It was like N-U-R-T-H or something. Now, bless my mom's heart. She had no idea to her. Like tactical backpacks made no sense to begin with. But I put it on and I went to school. Obviously, I then got bullied by a lot of my friends and everyone made fun of it. But I, I was just always thinking from that standpoint. I was like, my bag holds the same things your bag does. It looks just like your bag does, and it does all the same things. The big differentiator, what makes this big difference is that little logo. And so that was one of the sort of examples that got me excited into branding and marketing and trying to understand, like I said, the story behind the story. And I went over to uh, college, uh, shout out to Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, as well as part of the Posse Scholarship Foundation, but uh, went to college and I started just learning as much as I possibly could. I would, it was an entire library section that we had of business books that I'd always dreamed that one day I would own. And so I would just go check them out and start reading as much as I could. Started doing local workshops for small businesses. That sort of started going really well. And I realized that, hey, like this is cool. Not only am I solving all the questions I had when I was a child, but now I'm doing this for people who are just like my family, who are just like me, who are starting these small businesses, starting these entrepreneurship ventures and all. And then I started putting content online. Afterwards, the content online, we were very fortunate, blew up a bit on TikTok. We, I think we have close to 50,000 followers. And then from there, that sort of leveraged itself into a speaking career. And so now I'm fortunate enough, my five to nine, as I call it, because I have a nine to five as well. But my five to nine is I get to travel the nation giving talks about marketing and branding. Uh, I get to speak at conferences, colleges, businesses. And then my nine to five is I work over at Google as uh, my role is kind of crisis management meets proactive problem solving. I work with some of the world's largest advertisers, say Wayfair, Louis Vuitton, eBay, Etsy, and all. And my job is to pretty much jump in when things are going really hectic or crazy, try to figure out what's going on, work with the resources internally to try to solve for them, and then look for some of those proactive solutions in the long run. But it's a fun role. And so that's my nine to five, and then my five to nine, the speaking side. Two completely separate, but extremely sort of fulfilling parts of my life. I mean, that's fascinating. And you and I were briefly talking just before we came on air about our backgrounds. And you mentioned, oh, I'm Punjabi. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'm Punjabi too. And then the first question yeah. Punjabi asked another one is, can you speak Punjabi? And you were like, yeah, yeah. Second question is, have you seen the Lair Mendi? I actually met a Punjabi who didn't know the Lair Mendi and I was, I, I was wow. shocked. And so I sat her down and I was like, we're not doing anything else for the next 30 minutes. We're watching every single one of his music videos and all his songs now. Oh, and you actually said to me, you had to learn Punjabi before you learned English. So that's kind of an interesting way around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, both of my parents speak amazing English. And so there was really, it was more from a cultural standpoint. So they were very strict. They said, you were going to learn English when going to school, but at home, you should be speaking Punjabi. And so we grew up, in fact, it was the first language I learned how to speak. When I went to school, I actually ended up having to take special classes 
to help me lose the accent because I had a full Punjabi like accent because we grew up like listening to my parents and Punjabi music and sort of movies. But I'm very thankful for that now. I think being able to think and communicate in multiple languages, I can only imagine the amount of benefits it's had since then. Yeah, I was talking about Punjabi as a language the other day to a friend of mine and I was explaining to her as a Westerner that Punjabi, it's not a very romantic language. I mean, it can be, but if you compare it to something like Hindi, which is the predominant language in India, it's yeah. it's a quite yeah. a harsh language. I remember my daughter once, she yeah. heard two Punjabi people talking and she's like, Dad, are they are they yeah. arguing? And it just sounded like they're having a big argument, but it wasn't actually an argument at all. They're <laughs> being very polite to one another. Yeah, no, no, I always tell people is uh, Punjabi is a fun language. It's just fun. And it, the most mundane sentence you could possibly think of just like, because it's very heavy on your tonality. It's not just the words. So the same words said in different ways, it can mean completely different things. And so even just the most mundane, like, tukada, right? It's like, tukada, right? It's like, just suddenly that makes it just way more fun. I've also found when I meet people, this Punjabi people for the first time, when you start saying things like baji or like the zikada and all that, and people immediately gravitate towards that. I think Punjabi culture, from a young age, you're taught that it's like, it's not just your family unit. It's not just you. It's the entire culture. And so I think when you see Punjabis, you identify and you connect immediately. You're like, oh, we have some common things. I was watching a clip actually yeah. this morning on TikTok. I briefly stumbled upon it. Yeah. And just, just what you just said there reminded me of it. It was basically a guy who was busking in the street and he wasn't playing guitar or anything. Yeah. He decided to turn up to Birmingham city center and sing a Punjabi song. Like he had a little speaker and he was singing a Punjabi right. song. Oh my God, he yeah. had a crowd of people. It looked like an Indian wedding happening on the street. People right. were just walking past. And there's just something in the music that doesn't matter like what you're doing. No. If you're Punjabi, you're going to get onto that dance floor and start dancing. And he had this huge crowd of people that were just dancing. Yeah. And I thought, actually, what a great idea. Like, forget the instrument. Just come along. If you can sing a Punjabi song, yeah. you will definitely attract a crowd. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I, uh, and it's also, I mean, you saw in the... Don't quote me on this. I want to say most of the 2000s, but especially in the UK, like you had a huge sort of wave of Punjabi music sort of taking over. And I think one of the most beautiful things is Punjabi music is very bass oriented. And so it blends really well with other cultures. Uh, I used to have a lot of friends from like, like from Jamaica, for example, who would like, you throw on a Punjabi song, they'd be like, I don't understand what they're saying, but I can feel the beat and I can understand the beat. And it sounds kind of similar to what I have in my culture. Which is why I think, Punjabi, yeah, Punjabi music is like once it starts, you you just can't, you can't help yourself from moving. And we saw Diljit Dasanj recently sort of break records. I think he was at what? Yeah. Coachella? I think yeah. he was performed at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Punjabi music is having his sort of a renaissance again. I think we saw the first wave in the UK and now we're starting to see a lot in the US happening. Yeah. I think about the business world and from a professional perspective, many years ago, I almost suppressed my culture, even in the world of work. I always felt like yeah. I shouldn't really yeah. talk about it. People don't want to know about it. But yeah. then over the years, I've learned that actually it's a superpower to bring to the table. And, you know, just the fact that you've got yeah. all of these stories, going back to your point about, you know, brand stories, these are our yeah. stories. And I think whenever we share something personal, it doesn't have to be like your culture as deep as that, but even just a simple story of your childhood that, you're able to then share with people. It just gets people to connect, doesn't it? And so I've, I've really embraced that over the last few years. Absolutely, absolutely. Two points I'll put. One, I think the rise of TikTok, I think has helped, at least here in the US, I think 
there was a bit of a stigma definitely around brown culture or South Asian culture in general. You, you found ways to sort of fit in wherever you could. And then every now and then Disney Channel or like some big channel came out with like a, a Bollywood themed episode. And you're like, that, that was just, you know, that's all we really had. So you became used to this idea that every now and then, let's say if there was a wedding or a reception, I put on the suit, met the Arya, and like, now I'm Punjabi. But then as soon as that suit and I step out of that reception, I'm back to being American or whatever it is and whatever that definition was back then. I honestly, I have to credit TikTok because I, I, I've seen from the beginning, I was one of the earlier users of TikTok. And I saw this sort of rise of just like people putting up videos of like them in their suits and their like sort of dresses and like forming to like Punjabi songs or um, Hindi songs and all. And you sort of saw this rise of like, oh, people who like were kind of spread out throughout the US, but now suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, you have Indian suits. Indian suits look amazing. I'm going to put them on. You have a lot of huge creators that came out of that specific niche of showing South Asian culture, which I thought has been sort of a beautiful sort of renaissance to it. But the second thing I'll also add on is your point of the brands and the stories that you're able to tell. We don't relate to a logo. We don't relate to any given brand. Like if I told you like, oh, how do you feel about Amazon? Like you'll think about it as a company. You don't imagine it as a person. But it's part of the reason why we've seen this huge rise in like, you know, the mm -hmm. Duolingo bird? Duolingo bird. I mean, 10 years ago, if you told me that, yeah, one of the largest marketing campaigns was going to be a walking around like bird mascot, people like, what? But we connect with that. During the 2013 Super Bowl here in the US, uh, there was a power outage. And at the time, Oreo, the, the cookie company, they came out with a tweet that said something like, you can still dunk in the dark. And it went on to win a ton of awards and a bunch of like accolades, but it wasn't special. Like, the messaging itself, the text, it, it was the fact that they used social media as like, it was one of the early examples of using social media as like reactionary marketing, as opposed to this months long sort of plan. And all it really did was at the end of the day for the consumers, it just reminded them, oh, even at a big company like Oreo, there's just another person on the other end of the screen who finds this situation just as funny as I do and is human. And I think that's part of the reason, like for a lot of uh, people ask like, oh, if I have a business and I want to build a brand, and, like, one of the first things you learn to do is be able to tell stories because we don't relate to a logo. We relate to the stories and like the people that those stories imply in the background. One of the questions that was coming to my mind was, look, if I'm sat at home now, I'm working as a professional and I may not have my own business. So why should I listen? to the advice on this particular episode? How is that going to help me? So if I'm a professional, I don't know, working in tech, then should I really care about brands and stories? Is that something that I need to build for myself into my own yeah. life? Or is this for other people? No, no, 110% for everyone. I think one of the simplest ways was, I think Jeff Bezos actually said it. He was like, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And I can't, there's just a single person that I've met in my life who genuinely does not care what someone has said about them when they've left the room. We obviously care. And I think one of the best advice I got, and I'm sure it's an old adage in, in of itself, is if you are not telling your story, then someone else is. And the power we give away when we are not actively telling our story is pretty dangerous because people can run with, for example, like say, even like if you need to cancel a meeting, I could have an entire family issue coming up behind me. I could have a huge valid reasoning as to why this is happening. But if I don't share that story or if I don't share the details, the person on the other end can just assume what they need to assume. Oh, this person's unreliable. This person isn't following through. And so that was a real life example sort of given to me there. My understanding of marketing and the way that I've shared it, marketing and branding, is that all you're really doing is handling someone's curiosity. And what I mean by that is, for example, there are models in within marketing. For example, have you ever heard of the Ada marketing funnel? Oh, no, but please do enlighten yeah. me. So it's four layers that everyone goes through whenever they're doing anything. And I know how broad this sounds, but it's it just because when you hear it, you'll see how broad it is. The first one, A, stands for awareness. 
I stands for interest, D for desire, and A for action. So you become aware of the fact that something exists, you begin to become interested in it, you begin to desire it, and then finally you take the action. Whether that is buying a t-shirt, so you become aware when you go to the mall, you see the t-shirt, so you become aware. You start looking at it, so you become interested in some of the features. You start going, you know what, I could imagine myself wearing this shirt, I want it, so you begin to desire it, and finally you take the action of buying it. Or if you meet someone and say, let's even look at this podcast, for example. So when you're doing the podcast now, I became aware of the fact that you exist because I saw all the videos that you're putting out. I became interested in wanting to connect, so we connected. Then I desired being on the podcast because you reached out with details. And finally, we took the action of actually scheduling something. And now the most important part about this is that everyone will go through these stages regardless any time they're doing anything. You, any scenario, you can do it. But the important part is to look at the flip side. I could have become aware of the fact that you existed by just seeing all your clips and never have done anything with it. You actively kept putting more clips, more clips, and you were active on LinkedIn and all the other platforms. I could have gone into interest and in looking at all the things you're doing and never moved on to the desire phase because I could have been like, oh, he's cool. Nice. I'm going to save his videos. But then when we connected, you actively reached out and were like, hey, would you want to be on the podcast? Right? I could be stuck in like, yeah, I want to be on the podcast and desire phase. But then you actively went, here's the Calendly link. Let's schedule something. So I think the reason why this model is so powerful is one, you can break down any human behavior into these four steps as a person. So whether you're going into a meeting or you're trying to pitch something, say you're working in a business and you're doing entrepreneurship as opposed to entrepreneurship, you can break down each one of these stages. I've got to guide my audience through these stages. I do the same thing when I'm giving talks or presentations. Become aware, interested, desire. Finally, there's an action I lead you to at the end, whether that's sign up for my email list or, hey, reach out to me and I'll send over the, like, the notes from this meeting. But on the flip side for someone is like also to realize like it's my job to guide people through those steps. When Nike uses this formula, Nike creates these large, expansive campaigns like the Colin Kaepernick ad. Think of any of these ads that Nike puts out that feel very motivational. It's like, are you a motivational company or are you selling me clothes? And most people look at it it's like, why are they bothering to get political? Why are they bothering to be involved in sort of societal stories? It's because that's their awareness content. It's the content that gets you going, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Then they start going into like showing you things like their different shoes and the different technology that they have and what they're doing to empower athletes. That makes you interested. And then they go into going, well, you know that technology that so-and-so athlete uses that you think is interesting? Well, you could wear that and that'll make your shoe game better. Now you're in the desire. Oh, me? Yeah, I want to be part of it. And then Nike goes, okay, well, buy now because we've got 25% off for December or something. So they're very deliberate about guiding people through those steps. And the same way anyone who's looking at these models is marketing is more than just for business. It's for the story you are telling about yourself. So CEO of Duolingo, yeah. he recently did this TED talk, how to make learning as addictive as social media. And it's got yeah. a very compelling title. So I thought I'm going to check this out because it, it sounds like something I would be super interested in. It, it was great because there's so much storytelling in there. He talks all about his background and how he grew up in Guatemala and the, just the whole kind of yeah. history behind why he decided to launch this company. And at the end of the TED Talk, I'm looking at the comments yeah. in the, 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 the comment section on YouTube and somebody had summed it up. They said, it was a fantastic TED Talk, but I feel like I've just watched a 13-minute advert for Duolingo because the whole talk was about promoting this product and this brand. Yeah. And it was exactly that. It was a masterstroke, I feel, because although he hooks yeah. you in and there are lots of great learning points in there, 
it was all about Duolingo. You walk away becoming a fan of this company, but it's all through that storytelling yeah. that you're talking about. No, no, absolutely. I think the thing I'll point out is, have you ever heard of the, the six stories for a brand? So this, this is one of the easiest exercises I go through when I'm talking to someone and they're like, hey, I have a business. I want to build a brand. Like I'm working with a, a clothing brand, uh, a, a clothing business. Now. I wouldn't even say. So I think the, biz the difference between a business and a brand is that a business is single faceted. I'm selling a product. Once I've sold you that product, I may follow up, but then that's we're done for the most part. A brand is like, not only do I sell this product, but this is who I believe in. These are who we are. This is what we do, blah, blah, blah. It feels more like a person. And I've always argued that the transition from a business to a brand is just learning how to tell, at the bare minimum, six types of stories. And the six types are one, your origin story, which I'm trying to think of a, a brand. Oh, have you ever heard of the Beauty Blender? I, th I think I need to know about that. That sounds like a good good tool for a guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's like a little sponge that is used by people who are makeup enthusiasts to blend, literally to blend their makeup in. You've definitely seen it around. It's like this little like swoop pink like sponge thing. But anyways, the stories that they tell is like how the founder was herself in television for a long time. Cameras were becoming more advanced and she started realizing her makeup wasn't looking the way she wanted it to. So she invested in this business to help like, you know, to spread this. And that origin story lend itself to her, like the credibility of the brand. The second type is culture stories people learn to tell. So these are stories like Ben and Jerry's talks about things that they're passionate about and the social justice causes they're working on. You have your product stories, which are like actually focused on the product themselves. But I think the Duolingo example was a great one where I'm talking about the product, but I'm not really talking about the product. So Warby Parker is another one. Are you familiar with Warby Parker, the glasses company? No, no. So they were one of the early companies to pioneer that e-commerce, like ordering glasses online practice. And a lot of their story is that they've started out is that we actually started because we saw how like expensive normal glasses can be because they're controlled by certain companies. And we want to democratize access to these glasses. And so when they talk about a lot of their advertising early on, they kept saying, oh, our glasses are plastic and metal, just like everyone else's. But now let's move on. But if you buy a pair, here's what it does. Or here's the mentality that went behind designing this. So they were talking not about the product, but about what the product symbolizes as a whole, which I think is similar to that Duolingo talk from what I'm hearing from you is I'm not telling you that, look, these are the six features we have. I'm telling you, oh, like, and this is the lesson we learned from doing this thing where like you hear about the product, you're like, oh, that product's cool, but he's not sitting there going, okay, this is the exact, this is what our product does. One great example, are you familiar with a thousand songs in your pocket? So is this the iPod when the iPod first came out and Steve Jobs talked yes, about yes. the songs in your pocket? Yes. yes. Okay. That's yes. what I have heard of. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, when the iPod came out, it can be argued it wasn't the most technologically advanced thing. Like there were other competitors in the market, but what helped them stand out is when most competitors focused on the features. So X number of megabytes or whatever they used to have back then, Apple focused on the benefit of that feature. So not just telling you what they offer, but why you should care. So they focused on a thousand songs in your pocket. And for consumers, that was a lot easier for us to understand. Like, oh, okay, cool. This is what the point is going to be. And it's a lot of this features versus benefit type of marketing. And it's always like the benefit type wins out. That covers the first three stories, sorry, origin, culture, product. Then the fourth type of story you learn to tell is societal stories. So a business can operate in a vacuum. A brand cannot. So think of Nike's Colin Kaepernick ads or think of any ads where like they comment on what's going on in society as a whole. They're reminding people that, hey, we are at the end of the day made up of people just like you who are also existing in the same reality as you do. A great example actually of this now is, have you heard of the Stanley Cup car fire at all? So there was a woman who went uh, viral on TikTok because she put up a video of her car burning down. But the only thing that survived in her car was her Stanley Cup. It's like an insulated cup that you hold. They've always said they're very durable, the company. But this is a real example where there was no marks on the 
the cup itself. In fact, I think, don't quote me on this, it, the ice inside the cup was still wow. like frozen. That's how, you know, and like that obviously became an amazing marketing ploy for this company, real life example. But then what they did is they did something even better is they offered to pay to buy that woman a new car. So it doesn't always have to be this massive like Nike, Colin Kaepernick, societal issues, racism and all this. Sometimes it can just be as simple as reminding people like, hey, we get it. Like this is a tough situation. We're sorry this happened to you. But the fact that you were there and like you shouted out our product, we're going to help you out. And just reminds people like, oh, these are human. The fifth type is the customer stories. Starbucks during the pandemic did something very interesting. I think it was during the pandemic. They kept coming out with almost like a weekly or biweekly uh, series where they highlighted typical customers that would come in. So one day they highlighted a mother with her children. They highlighted a working woman. They highlighted someone who was working like at Starbucks. And this whole idea to show these almost personas of like, look, our customers all vary, but the, they have some things in common. Like they view Starbucks as an escape from things. And then lastly is the future stories. Think of any stereotypical Tesla, SpaceX, uh, Virgin Atlantic, all those like sort of like here, we are pioneering into the future kind of stories. But if you learn to tell these six basics, these are very easy. I mean, I literally, this is what I do with most of the clients I work with is I'll have them sit down and go, give me 500 words for each one of these stories. And the reason being is this actually leads to a much more powerful exercise. I was uh, just pondering there about this podcast and I was thinking out of those six, which one would I focus on most? Make all six. I always tell people, I'm not doing anything that is profound. I would love to sit there and say, I've come up with the, the new you know, marketing religion. I'm giving you incredibly basic things that work. The problem is with most people I work with, I found it's not a lack of opportunity. It's an overabundance of them. And I tell people, stop overcomplicating it. Give me 500 words for your origin story, 500 words for your culture, 500 words for your product. And the key being when you simplify it is you are also now giving your audience and your team members the words that they need to use when they're talking about you. Remember, this comes full circle. We said your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Option one is I'm going to do a bunch of really cool things and then let you figure out what you're going to say about me. That's kind of risky because we can all come and see the same play and walk out with 100 different interpretations. Versus if I, throughout our entire conversation constantly, for example, me giving you stories is not, I mean, I'm very fascinated. I love them. But part of the reason is when I leave and at some point you're in a dinner conversation with someone and you go, oh, you interviewed Chirag. What was that like? You're like, oh, he had really good stories. Why? Because I'm constantly using the word story, story, story. I'm giving you the words that I want you to use when you're talking about me. Same thing happens when you're in a corporate setting as well. If you want people to acknowledge that, oh, this is someone who solves problems, then constantly share like, hey, guys, I identified this problem and here's what I came up with. If you guys want to try it out, here's a link to my project document that you can copy. Problem, solution. If you want to see what I've done and copy it, you can. I'm deliberately using these words so that when people are sitting there and asked about me, oh, yeah, Trog, he finds a lot of problems and he finds a lot of solutions for them. You can go check out some of his work. There's a subliminal message in there about the language that you're using and it gets you to kind of repeat that once you're not there. And how do you build your storytelling muscle as an individual? Yeah. Because I've met a couple of people, close friends who are absolutely amazing at telling stories. Like they can walk into a room of yeah. strangers and within five minutes, there'll be a big crowd of people around yeah. them because they're sharing these crazy stories and they have this gift for being able to tell them in such a way that it just gets yeah. you hooked. I have to acknowledge privilege that I have. I'm a 
South Asian college educated male with a degree working in tech, right? And for Google, I think the point of privilege to point out for me, I found it is much easier than it may be for others for me to have a voice in a room, right? When I speak, people do stop and listen. So I have privilege there. What I would say as far as practicing it moving forward is it's just practice. People will ask me, I mean, you have to think about this idea is I literally grew up performing. I'm talking to 50, 60 different strangers every single day for decades. And it's like, then you slowly start building that skill over time. One of the advice that I'll, when they're presenting, especially, I think the biggest mistake when I'm coaching people through becoming more effective um, presenters, don't make a script. Flies in the face of some of the feedback often given to people, right? Which is make a deck, practice your deck over and over again. I strongly disagree with that, right? Because for me is once I've created a script, then I'm trying to predict all of the little things that'll happen. And most of the fun things that happen, like for example, in this podcast, are things, I mean, we haven't even covered anything that I've wrote down. Because all the fun things come from those sort of the, the side tangents, the, the in the moment movement and pivots. So what I usually guide people through is like four statements. This is the big point I'm going to drive home. These are the three little examples or stories or like uh, models I'm going to talk about. And this is sort of like defining last sentence or last like key point I want to leave with. My slides are not my presentation. I am my presentation. My slides are just there. Just the only purpose my slides play are just like, you know, those TikTok videos where you see like the, the speed runner on the bottom and like the person talking on the top or like someone rolling clay. It is just there to keep your attention. And so what you do when you no longer are tied to the slides or tied to the script is you allow yourself the freedom to start, you know, moving in and out. And the worst case scenario, you go on a long tangent, you could always just go, okay, cool. Now let me come back. I really went over point one, two, point three. You can easily remember five points. Anything beyond that, I think, is when we get a little hazy. It also gives you the freedom to experiment. One last tip I'll, I'll, I'll throw in. I did a talk a while back, and there was a statistic on the screen. But I purposely, I, I tend to avoid text on screen as much as I can. I like doing graphics. So I didn't put the statistic on the screen. I forgot what the statistic was. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be very honest. I've forgotten the statistic. But it's very high. And if anyone asks, I remember the statistic and you were all very impressed. And like immediately everyone started laughing. Sure, it doesn't hurt your credibility. But like if you do that through the entire presentation, yes. But it was one little tidbit. I think what it did was it made my audience realize like, oh, he is human and it broke the ice. I would rather the audience be laughing the entire time and we're coming up with like this deep connection than for them to be sitting there like I'm some sort of guru speaking on top of a hill. Because you'll never remember that message. What I want them to remember is that feeling of like, okay, cool, I can do this. What Chirag said makes sense and I can apply this um, and I feel comfortable. That reminded me of a story since we're on to stories. A few months ago, I was out in the Netherlands doing a, a talk with a good yeah. friend of mine and I was in such a rush for that trip that I forgot my belt and I took my jeans and my jeans are like a little bit loose. I, I can't say like I definitely need my belt all the time, but they're not the best fitted. So I'm getting up, I'm about to do my talk and I kept shuffling around and then I'm on stage and I just thought I'd call it out because people could see that I was, you know, being distracted. So I just said to everybody, I said, hey, I, I apologize if I shuffle around. I said, it's because I forgot my belt and I'm just yeah. pulling my trousers up. And the first time it got a little bit of a laugh, but I was being deadly serious. I just wanted to call it out. And as the talk went on, I kept pausing <laughs> and pulling. And then after a while, I think I started doing it on purpose almost because every time I did it, I'd get a laugh. Yeah. And yeah. there was a, a moment at the end where we invited people to write one word or two words of things that they were going to take away, actions yeah. that they were going to take away. 
and we got them right on a piece of paper and throw it out. It's like a oh, I love that. And yeah, I just remember at the end we were going through all of the papers, and this one just it it, it was so memorable. Somebody put on there next time, don't forget your belt, <laughs> and it, it it was just amazing. But like you say, you know, sometimes being human and just calling it out is the done thing to do and it can actually work in your favor because people do warm yeah, to that yeah. call it naivety young age is i've never really understood this people have this huge desire i wouldn't need to be seen as an authority there are people there who see me as an authority there's like someone that they can trust and speak to i want to break the fourth wall i i shouldn't seem like i'm just on someone on who's speaking on a stage and you can't connect with me because then we're not building a relationship you're just an audience right so the more you can engage the audience in the conversation that's what makes it fun that's what makes it exciting to do these things as I could just sit in front of a camera and speak for hours there. The purpose of being in person is interacting with people. And yeah, sometimes it's something as small as the belting. So you mentioned you had a few things written down that we didn't get to cover. So I'd love to pick one or two of those that you would really want to talk about. One of the common mistakes I see is lack of a KPI. Are you familiar with the key performance indicator? Your key performance indicator is the trick you use to measure success. And I found that like when I'm working with brands and they're like, we want to grow our followers. Or I'm talking to someone who's like, working at a, a, a company and they're like, oh yeah, I just feel well on like, I do well on my project or on my promotion or XYZ thing. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really tell me anything. That's an tangible goal you can go for. I was working with someone who had, she had 10,000 followers on one platform, social media, and she had 100,000 on another. And so we got into the call and she goes, Trog, you know, I've listened, I, I'm agreeing. It's not a lack of options, overabundance of them. I'm going to pick one thing to work on. I'm going to work on the 100,000 follower account instead. And I go, let's pause for a minute because the key performance metric that you're, or indicator that you're using is followers. But that doesn't really make sense because you're not a media company. You're a company company that needs to sell things. So I said the key performance indicator should maybe be sales. So we looked at our analytics and the platform that only had 10,000 followers was leading to 90% of her sales. Most of the people that came from the 100,000 uh, follower platform, they just came onto the site, looked around and then left, right? Now you can always strengthen that. There's a million strategies to play, but it was a great example of where if you looked at followers, key performance indicator that didn't really make sense for her and her business, then she would have been misguided and she would have ran in one direction. But when she looked at herself and goes, what's the most important thing to me right now? The one thing that I can measure and look as my North Star, it became a lot easier for her to strategize and find something that works for her. And the same thing I acknowledge for anyone that's working on any goal that they have. Don't just say you want to get fit. Give me a very specific metric, whether that's your BMI or whatever that is, or then don't tell me that you want to start walking. Tell me how many steps you want to walk and that you're aiming for. So my Last two questions for you on this episode. The first one, if I could give you any superpower to abolish something in the world of work for 24 hours, what would that be? I would want to abolish that, that sort of fear or stigma people have about sharing what they want out of this, right? At the end of the day, whatever we're doing, we have some goal, whether it's, hey, this brings me passion, or I want to go for a promotion, or I want to make more money. And I found the most successful conversations or partnerships that I have is when we hop into a call and I go, okay, cool. We're both going to sign this project. Let me ask you, this is what I want to get out of this. Like when my manager asked me about this in six months, I want to tell him, oh, I did this thing and I had this skill that I developed and we came with this outcome. What about you, right? And that person goes, oh yeah, actually, you know, I'm going to motion in three months. I want to be able to have a good story to tell there. Then it's like, okay, cool, nice. Now I know what you want out of this. You know what I want. Let's split up the work or let's like help each other. Let's like work together as a team, which unfortunately I think in corporate America or in just corporate or work in general, I think people tend to be a bit more guarded. It's almost seen as taboo to be ambitious. I think don't be a snake, don't be rude, but like at the end of the day, we're all in it. You know, it's a stereotypical question. Why do you want to work here? And they expect you to give some passionate plea. Like I just work here because I need money, right? Kind of thing. 
And in reality, that's yeah. for a lot of people. We all have a goal in mind. So why not be open with each other and frank so we can help each other reach those goals? The idea that certain conversations are taboo, whether it's pay or things like this, that's what I would want to show. More transparency. Got it. You went all deep on me on that one. But yeah, I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you could recommend any resources yeah. for people who want to know more about this topic and also how can people get in touch yep. with you? Yes, yes, you. yes. So if you just want my content, my goal is to make as much as of what I learned free and accessible as possible. I hated that idea of like growing up and not having access to information. So if you do just want to you know, learn more and more marketing and branding, like sort of uh, tricks and tips and all these like things that happen behind and the stories behind the brands, uh, check out chiragspeaks.com. And I'm on all the actually TikTok and Instagram. Uh, and we're trying to grow the LinkedIn right now. So please connect either way. If you want to book me to speak as well, always happy to do that as well. But other than that, I think one of the big books that I've been recommending recently, it's called Winning the Story Wars by Jonah Satch. So Winning the Story Wars by Jonah Satch. But why those who tell and live the best stories will rule the future. Um, I think he does a really good job of sort of breaking down the basic premises of this mentality. Once you start viewing everything in the terms of a story that's being told, you start noticing a million other things. But a really good gateway into getting your mindset down that route. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Chirag. And we'll include your links in the show notes as well so people can get in touch with you. And please do, please do contact Chirag. He's an amazing guy. And I just love your energy, your positivity, and your passion for this topic as well. So I know we are out of time. And I just want to thank you. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. And I feel like I'm a lot wiser than I was at the start of the conversation. I have lots more stories that I can uh -huh. now put into my storybook that I, I carry around with me. It, it means the world to hear that, generally. From someone like yourself, very, very impressed with the work you're doing. I look up to you. So to, to me, this, trust me, is an honor for me to be on this side. So really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll connect more in the future. Oh, thank you so much. It's the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please do connect with me via LinkedIn and drop me a message and let me know your favorite takeaways from the episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Superpower School newsletter so that you can be notified of all future episodes. Simply visit the website www.superpowers.school. Thank you once again.